reflect on in particular being in the Psalms, I was thinking about how, you know, sometimes you send text messages and, well, I don't know about you, sometimes I send really long text messages, like the kind that you have to go to a separate page and read, you know what I'm talking about? So I send those thinking I'm really clear, like I got to use all the words I can so that this is really understood, but it always is misunderstood. It's not like sometimes I'm clear, always something that I said just isn't just didn't get through. Some of you guys are smiling, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. It, it can be so frustrating how words in a text aren't clear. It can be really frustrating when you think you're clear. You think you communicated the right emotion, and somehow it's taken as some sort of slam on somebody, or uh, it somehow is hurtful when there was no intention to be hurtful. It's, I use text messages because Social media is a little more of a hot topic, and I know that you understand the difficulty in communication on social media. And so I, was, I thought about all this because the ways in which the Psalms somehow communicate emotion through words on a page or a screen, somehow lyrics and poetry can get the right emotion across. And, and this morning we're going to be in Psalm 109 uh, in just a minute, and you're going to see some emotion come across, uh, and sometimes the emotions are confusing, but I think they're important. All through Scripture, we have so much knowledge, so much information, so much theology that we can keep in our minds and process and try to apply to life, and we end up with religion, living legalistic lives if we leave out the emotion of things, and so that's why we've emphasized emotion present in the book of Psalms. We are, human beings are, emotional creatures created in the image of an emotional God. So your feelings, if you've never heard this from a pastor before, please hear me say your feelings matter. They have purpose. They're right and they're good. And it's right and good to express them. Now, sometimes they're rooted in your, in your flesh. Sometimes they're coming from a sinful place. But even then, they have purpose. And so Psalms are, the Psalms are a biblical support for this. And, and I would go further and say if you deny emotions, even the so-called negative ones, the, the sadness, the jealousy, the anger, if you deny your emotions, then, then you aren't embracing who you are as a human being. If we deny our emotions, we miss out on understanding ourselves holistically. And even worse, you miss discovering something of what God is like because those emotions connect us to our creator, our father. So this morning, let's feel. Let's feel, let's breathe it in, and let's let it out. And may God help us as we dig into what is one of the most difficult psalms uh, to understand because the emotion is kind of shocking. So let's read it. As we go through this, it's, it's kind of long. It's 31 verses, and I'm going to Add a little commentary in there, so follow along so you'll know what's my words and what's the word of God. And let's feel it together. To the choir master, a psalm of David. Be not silent, O God of my praise. So this is important. You could repeat this throughout. The cry is, the desperation is, be not silent. And it's addressed to God as a prayer. O God of my praise, be not silent. For the wicked and deceitful mouths are open against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. 
They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. So not revenge. I'm not, I'm not attacking them back, but I'm coming to you, God, in prayer so that so they reward me or they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. So I want to identify specifically these are words that he's being hurt by. They're not sticks and stones. Words are causing damage. And the feeling is betrayal. He's hurt. They're, he's being given evil for what he gave was, that was good, for friendship, for love, for whatever it was. For his love, he received hatred. For, for his good, he received evil. So he feels betrayed, and there's some anger and some sadness. And so here's his response. The one through five is the address. Like, God, here's what I'm feeling. This is what people are doing to me. And here's his request. A prayer of judgment, starting in verse 6. Appoint a wicked man against him. So he's making it singular. He's pointing out the pack leader. Someone's leading this. He's surrounded. Think of like a pack of dogs, wild dogs attacking someone. There's, a, there's an alpha male in there somewhere. He's, he's pointing out the leader, and he's saying, appoint a wicked man against him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is tried, let him come forth guilty, because he is guilty. Let his prayer be counted as sin. So this is harsh. I want you to feel the weight of it. He's praying judgment on a human being. I don't know how much you have felt hurt by someone in your life, but it's a special kind of hurt to ask God to do these things, and it's about to get worse. Verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. As a a side note, this is this is reference is verse eight. May another take his office is is referenced in Acts chapter one, verse 20, when the disciples are seeking to replace Judas, the betrayer. So it's 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 relevant because it's pointing us somewhere else. But also Judas betrayed Jesus, just as David is feeling betrayed here and also the disciples recognized this passage of Scripture enough. They were familiar enough with it to quote it in that moment. And that's significant because many commentators want to throw this out and say, well, this is an example of what not to do. Or, or here's, there's something off about this, so let's just skip over it when we're preaching through the Psalms. There's, there's something not right about this emotion. It feels wrong in a lot of ways. But the disciples recognize it enough to quote it and put it in context of replacing a betrayer. It's important. Verse 9. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Certainly you feel the weight of pain that would bring someone to pray these words. May his children be fatherless. May his wife be a widow. May his children wander about and beg, seeking food far from the ruins they inhabit. May the creditor seize all that he has. Let there be none to extend kindness to him. May strangers plunder the fruits of his toil. Let there be none to extend kindness to him, nor any to pity his fatherless children. May his posterity be cut off. 
May his name be blotted out in the second generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord and let not the sin of his mother be blotted out. So the whole family, he's talking future family, his kids and his past family, his mom, his dad, blot them out. Let them be before the Lord continually that he may cut off the memory of them from the earth. The prayer is, Lord, give them what they deserve. And their kids. And his mama. It's hate. He wants them to be hated because he was hated. Hated and forgotten as he feels hated and forgotten. Let there be no mercy, no grace, only curses. Because they've shown him no mercy, no grace, only curses. This is coming from a deep place of pain that maybe you're somewhat familiar with, but I doubt that we've experienced the amount of suffering and betrayal that it seems David is feeling. He's asking God to curse his accuser. And then he goes on, starting in verse 16, to say why. A list of reasons. For he did not remember to show kindness, but pursued the poor and needy and the, broken, and the brokenhearted to put them to death. He loved curses, so let curses come upon him. He did not delight in blessings. Well, may they be far from him. He clothed himself with cursing as his coat. Well, then wear your coat of, of curses. May it soak into his body like water, like oil into his bones. May it be like a garment that he's wrapped around him, like a belt that he puts on every day. May this be the reward of my accuser from the Lord, of those who speak evil against my life. Lord, judge them because they are against me, and because they are against me, they're against you. And then he requests grace and mercy for himself. Both bring glory to God to condemn and pour out wrath on the wicked and to bless the righteous. God hates sinners. Be reminded of that. God hates sinners, not just sin. Throughout the Psalms, we see clearly God hates workers of iniquity. God hates evildoers. God hates sinners. This is what they deserve. But for us, the children of God, verse 21, but you, O God, my Lord, so we're seeing the heart of the afflicted one. We're seeing his heart here. This is where he knows his position before God. Deal on my behalf for your namesake. So for your glory. Because your steadfast love is good, deliver me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. I am gone like a shadow at evening. I'm shaken off like a locust. There's humility in here, neediness. He's alone. He feels insignificant. He feels neglected. He feels forsaken. He's asking God for mercy. 24, my knees are weak through fasting. So either he can't eat or he won't eat. Either way, he's weak from it. My body has become gaunt with no fat. So the suffering has been going on for some time. I'm an object of scorn to my accusers. When they see me, they wag their heads. Help me. He's saying, help me. I feel like no one's helping me. Lord, my God, for your glory, help me. Save me according to your steadfast love. Let them know that this is your hand. You, O oh Lord, have done it. So the answer to this prayer 
is to show them shame and show me mercy and let them know it's you. Make sure they know you're the one that's against them because they've come against me. Verse 27. Let them curse, but you will bless. They they arise and are put to shame, but your servant will be glad. May my accusers be clothed with dishonor. May they be wrapped in their own shame as a cloak. With my mouth, I will give great thanks to the Lord. I will praise him in the midst of the throng. For he stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. Praise God for the faithful, honest, emotional expression of David. Let's pray and then let's talk about it. Father, I'm I'm grateful for your word, but sometimes I I don't know what to do with it. Uh, Sometimes... I don't, take, I don't really take the time to consider it, if I'm honest. I don't, things that confuse me or things that seem off to me, I just look over. So I pray that as we have read through your word, that it would not be void. But that you would pierce us, that you would reach deep into the depths of our souls, that we would come to know who we are and know who you are by your word. I praise you for King David thousands of years ago before any of us knew we would read these words or he wrote them as a cry to you from his desperation. So help us this morning to consider our desperation. Whether it seems life is good or we're just lying and saying it is, Wherever we find ourselves this morning as individuals, however we find ourselves as the crossing church, your body on mission in this city, speak to us clearly through your word. Show us who we are. Show us who you are and call us to greater things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I have preached on prayer to this congregation several times throughout the years. We've talked about going to our Father in prayer. We've talked about Uh, the need, the disposition, the humility we should have in doing that. We go to him and ask him for whatever you want because he's your father and he wants to give it to you. But I've not always considered that this might be the prayer you're going home to pray. And I want to be honest. If you are, it makes me nervous. Because I don't want to be the one who's offended you. And we have a God who hears our prayers and he answers our prayers. So this type of text needs to bring us to a place to reconcile these two thoughts. We can go to God with anything. We can pray. We can ask for anything. And he hears them and he answers them. We're encouraged to do this again and again, to beg him to move and to work. That's been our sermons in the past. What do we do with this? What do we do with these emotions? I'm I'm guessing some in this room have been betrayed. I know for certain some have been betrayed. Someone in your life who was supposed to love you hasn't loved you. Someone in your life who had been faithful for maybe some period of time all of a sudden stabbed you in the back. You know what this feels like. Maybe not the depths, but you know what it feels like. You've been hurt. You've been angry. You've been sad. And these are the words in the Scriptures as a model to us of what to do with that pain. 
is called a lament. We talked about a lament last week from depression. This week, this lament is coming from a different kind of sadness, a different kind of desperation. Lament is the largest category of psalms. It's about a third of the entire Psalter. It's lament, crying out to God for help. And it's, it's relevant for every human being who's ever lived to reveal this deep sorrow, the grief, the anger, the regret, this honest expression of the human struggle to God, the creator of all things who knows it and trusting he's going to answer it. He's going to do something to change it. That's lament. It's a prayer. It's crying out to our Father in complete vulnerability because he already knows. He knows where you are. He knows what you feel. Lament is holy in that way. Lament is righteous. What David prayed is righteous. We have to make sense of it because Scripture's not wrong. Our perspective or our leanings or our culture has taught us to look certain ways. Our church culture has taught us to view certain emotions certain ways. And we need to allow the Scripture to read us as we read it. So this prayer is going to God, asking him to respond and bring justice because justice is good and right. And in almost every lament in in the Scriptures, they end with this sort of, God, you're faithful. I'm giving this up to you. It's a, it's a turning over of things. The Lord is sovereign. He's got this. And so some laments are communal. The group of people following God needing to see him move, they go and they sing these songs to him corporately. And some are very personal and individualistic like the one we just read. And David has been hurt. He's angry at his accusers. And obviously he feels he's been betrayed. He feels he, he's done nothing to deserve this. He stands as poor and fragile and broken as his accusers continue to attack him. And he's crying out for help with raw honesty. And understandably, we may feel uncomfortable about it. We see a man afflicted. He's beat up. He's exhausted. Anyone in here felt afflicted or beat up or exhausted? We we turn to things in this world to, to satisfy the feeling. Because we know it's wrong. And it seems clear to me there's somewhere we can go with that. There's some words we can express when we feel those things. Instead of dressing up, putting on a smiley face, and anyone who asks you how you're doing just saying, I'm good. I'm fine. But you're not. How is it that logically we've gotten to a place where we think it's better to lie than to be honest because it's taboo to be sad. It's taboo to be angry. It's taboo to feel hurt. Lying is better. I mean, let's talk about it. It's foolish, right? But we do it all the time because they don't really care. They don't really want to hear. Well, you know who does care? You know who does want to hear? Are we going to him? So we see a man afflicted. He's weak. He's needy. He's desperate. So he cries to the Lord and lament. And it's so deep and dark that it almost feels wrong. Yet don't miss this. The very fact that the prayer is voiced is an expression of hope and faith in a God who can save him. That's why it's righteous. He's not gossiping about somebody. He's not taking matters into his own hands to go and fix the problem. He's not... He's not just putting on a smiley face and pretending like it's not there. He's being honest to his father because he knows his father can do something about it. 
That's lament. And it's not just David. Lament is all over Scripture. We, we talked about it with Job. We see it in Isaiah. Jesus lamented. He cried out with his anguish, brokenness, for the faithlessness around him, for the doubters around him. When Lazarus died, he, he wept. When his cousin John died, he wept. In the Garden of Gethsemane, before he took on the burden of being crucified for all the sinners who would ever live, he wept with such deep anguish. Blood came from his eyes. That's grief. That's lament. Why then is there such a stigma? If weeping has such an honored place in Scripture, why do we feel like we have to cast it aside as this despised and rejected emotion? I don't know. I thought, I thought hard on it. I really don't know. Weakness to the world is negative. But weakness to God is holy. It's humility. It's positioning yourself before a sovereign king. That's admitting you need help because you do. And lament happens. It really only happens in the wilderness. It happens in the hard places. It happens during the suffering. It's an impulse. It's a reaction. If we pretend like we don't have times in the desert, if we pretend like we're never in the wilderness, we're never suffering, then we won't know Jesus, the man of sorrows, the suffering servant. We won't know how to witness to a world that is certainly suffering and certainly has sorrow. In addressing this, this frame of thought, Eugene Peterson said that learning the language of lament is not only necessary to restore Christian dignity to suffering and repentance and death, it is necessary to provide a Christian witness to a world that has no language for and is therefore oblivious to the glories of wilderness and cross. I love this because it's, it's implying, in fact, it's saying, lament is a language. It's a God-given language to express the hopelessness, the depths of our sin. It's a, it's a right and good thing to bring those, that stuff to Jesus who liberates us from sin and all of its effects. It seems to me that if you don't lament or you can't lament, you may not understand the depths of your sin. You may not see the effects of sin around you in the world. You don't feel the weight of responsibility for the brokenness if you won't or can't lament. God uses that suffering to bring glorious things about, and we're resisting that when we refuse to weep. Or maybe we just don't trust God has a plan and a purpose for it. Either way, lament should be an automatic expression of our faith. If you have faith, when suffering comes, when you're in the desert, when you're in the wilderness, when you see the effects of sin, you cry out. You lament. It's praising the only one who can right the wrongs. So think of it like this. If there's no, or there is no worship unless there's wilderness. There's no deliverance unless there's captivity. There's no vindication unless there's accusation. There's no resurrection unless there's death. And if we aim to be a church on mission, which we do, gospel-centered missional communities, for the sake of the mission, we must learn the language of lament. How can we speak to the suffering of the world if we don't know the language? How can we, how can we allow the people who are in the margins suffering into our spaces and into our ears 
as they tell their stories? How can we allow them into our hearts if we can't understand them? So we too need to lament the brokenness. It's, a, it's an interesting thought to me. Uh, the moment we come out of the womb, the moment we enter the world, what do we do? We cry. And a good mother, being the good mother she is, what does she do? Stop crying. They're there. Calm down. Rocking, soothing, feeding, changing, swaddling. Dad's right along there. Just, what do I, are you cold? Are you hungry? You got poop? Just stop crying, stop crying, stop crying. Don't cry, don't cry. They're there. Now, I'm not advocating or promoting neglect or baby-wise, but perhaps it'd be good for us to learn the language of lament sooner rather than later. Maybe we should cry. Every time Titus is upset about something, which happens a lot, he's a very passionate kid. When he cries, when he's angry, Sometimes, I say every time, sometimes I'm like, stop, please, just stop. Uh, But when God's grace is working, I say, amen, it's okay to be sad. It's okay to be angry. Because no one ever told me that. It's okay. If you need to hear it today, hear me say it. It's okay to be angry. It's okay to be sad. It's good. It's by God's design that you would feel. And I don't know if you noticed, the world has a lot of reasons for us to cry. And according to Scripture, we have a Father who is moved by those tears. And David gives us many examples of it. So when you know Him, and when you are known by Him, you pour out that hurt. You pour out that fear. You pour out your disappointment, your temptation, your anger. Let him know what you're feeling. And be confident. He hears you and he has what you need. He takes it from you and he does something with it. It has purpose. And then and only then are you free to obey. Think of the command, love your enemy. How in the world do I love my enemy? Sure, when we just read over, we're like, yes, I'll do that one. I'll do that one. Love your enemy. But when your enemy's in your face, cussing you out, spitting on you, kicking you when you're down, do you love them? How in the world could you ever bring yourself to love someone who wants to kill you and destroy you? How can you love someone who hates your kids? How can you love someone who wishes the worst for you? There's only one way. You empty yourself of that hate. You empty yourself by lament. Pour yourself out to God. Make room for the love by pouring it out to Him, and then you let it go. Then it's not yours to carry. You don't have to seek the vengeance. Revenge is not yours. It belongs to the Lord. So when you give it to Him, you trust He can do better things with it than you ever could in your hands. And then you're free to love. And we know David did this. He had, he had opportunities. We don't know who he wrote this about in particular, but he had opportunities to take things into his own hands. He could have killed Saul a couple times he could have done that his his main accuser who really was like a stepdad to him who turned on him saw through spears at david and he could have killed him but somehow he found the means to love his enemy and i believe it's because david knew how to lament and so i don't need to teach you how i think it's in you i just want 
I want to assure you this morning that you, you are free to do it. You can. Verse 1 said, Be not silent, O God of my praise. This be not silent is a cry because it seems like God's silent. So maybe you feel like God has been silent in the midst of your suffering and when you felt betrayed or hurt. Maybe it seems like God's not even paying attention and the footprints in the sand poem just ain't getting you through it. Like, I need to see you now, God. I need you to hear me. I need you to do something. Show me you're listening. Be real to me right now because it doesn't feel like you're real. The emotions are real. I feel crushed by them. I'm starving for attention. God, give it to me. Show me that you're hearing me. Show me that you're listening. Be my vengeance so that I'm not tempted to take these things into my own hands. Let that stuff out. And I'll tell you why. Because if you bury stuff, it's guaranteed it's coming out. So let it out to God before it comes out on its own. It's going to find its way out, and you need to be healed by it. Are you healed by God from it? And, and I think that it's no coincidence when we talk about salvation, uh, it's not just in your mind. It's not just theological concepts. It's a change of who you are. It's your soul being changed. In the New Testament, the term we use in the Greek, or I didn't use it, whoever wrote the New Testament, the term used uh, that's often translated saved, I always debate, like, do I need to say the Greek word or not? Sozo is the word. It's often translated saved can be translated healed. In fact, it has this holistic uh, thing about it. A couple times in the New Testament, it is translated healed when Jesus heals those who have infirmities. But it's often translated saved. We're saved. I think in context, we determine which, but really it should be holistic always. I think it's applicable in every way. And so in our understanding of salvation, it needs to have wrapped up in it this healing. We've been rescued. We've been made whole. It's a work in progress, but it's guaranteed. All of you is made whole. So how is your soul needs to be the question. Not just how are you. How's your soul? Because you have a plan for your mind, right? Your daily devotion, your learning. You have a plan for your mind. You have a plan for your behavior. Some of it's illegalistic, but you're working your way through that. You're figuring out how do I behave rightly. But you have a plan for your soul. How is your soul? We use a phrase often, hurt people hurt people. Kind of a good phrase, I guess. It could be confusing because then you have to explain what it means. Hurt people hurt people. We know this. And the way we often use it is so we can relate. We can sympathize. That person's hurting me because they're hurt. And I think sometimes we use it as a reason to not lament. You know, they don't really mean it. They're hurt, so they're hurting me. I want to challenge you this morning to use that phrase, that, that way of thinking, to consider yourself a hurt person and know that you are in danger of hurting people. You are a hurt person. You're in danger of hurting people, even and maybe especially the people you love the most, unless you heal. We must be saved, healed. So let me dispel the myth, deflate the bravado. You aren't Superman. You aren't Wonder Woman. That's why Jesus did what he did, because you can't. It's in your vulnerability and your weakness that that power is known. The power of God is known when you're vulnerable, when you're weak, not when you're, you have your chest puffed up and you're like, I'm all right, you're cleaning the tears off, I wasn't crying, dust in my eye. It's when you admit you're weak 
that God's powerful. So for your good and for the glory of God, you need to cry. Cry out for rescue. Cry out for justice. Cry out for hope. Lament. And psychology, I studied psychology in my undergrad and an introduction to psychology. So anyone who took that class may know the story of, of Kitty, this lady in New York City, 1964. Kitty, her, her last name's French. I'm going to pronounce it though. Genovese. It's not a good, you don't know. Kitty Genovese, Genovese. Um, now that we laughed, it's kind of a sad story. Kitty was assaulted on her way home from work one evening. It was dark already in New York. There's apartment complexes all around her, and in the streets in the midst of it, she was assaulted from behind, stabbed in the back, and robbed. And her attacker continued to assault her and violate her as she cried out for a half an hour for help. The New York Times reported in one article that at one point somebody opened their window and yelled, leave that woman alone, and lights began to come on, so the attacker left, and she struggled to make her way to her feet, but no one came down. So the attacker returned, and he killed her. The New York Times released several articles following this as almost a, a psychological autopsy of society shirking its responsibility for one another. Just kind of like, I tried from up here. I tried. And it, it opened up a lot. Like That's why it's in psychology books, because it opened up a lot of discussion for what really happened. How, how did this woman yell out for half an hour and no one came to help her? And psycho psychologists created this terminology, the theory of diffusion of responsibility, where if you know a lot of people hear it, you kind of just defer it to someone else, someone's going to take care of it. Someone's going to help her. I don't have to. I don't believe these people were evil, but they were afraid. They were apathetic, assuming someone else was going to take care of it. At the very least, no one came down. They deferred responsibility. She cried out as she was being attacked and violated and eventually killed, and no one came down. They estimated about 38 people could hear her as witnesses to this crime. Son and daughter of the Most High God, I need you to know, when you cry out, God comes down. When you are afflicted and attacked and desperate for help, He hears you. Your Father hears you. Cry out to Him, and you can be assured He's coming down. And we know this because Jesus already did it. He stepped off his throne. He came down when he didn't have to. He stepped in to take on the pain. He suffered like you can't even imagine on your behalf so you could find freedom from your suffering. He heard our cries. He hears our cries. He's not silent on this. He's not forgotten you. He's not indifferent to your suffering. He knows what you feel. Cry out to him. Let him know you need him. And he will be faithful always. Maybe not always how you think, but he will be faithful always. So Jesus came down. He gave up his life that we might be saved, that we might be healed, and he rose victorious over sin and death. And Psalm 109 began with this complaint of betrayal. Well, consider Jesus alone on the cross, feeling forsaken even by his Father. God was being silent. 
He was encircled by accusers who were speaking against him, just as David was. He, he felt the lying and the mocking about him and his integrity and who he was betrayed. His disciples, his closest friends, they ran. They rewarded evil for his good. They, re, they rewarded hatred for his love. To be clear, our sins mocked him on that cross. Our pursuit of evil shouts lies about God's goodness. We're the reason the nails were in his hands and the nails were in his feet. It's us in that crowd that day. But instead of crying out for curses on us, the ones following the prince of the power of the air, the sons and daughters of disobedience, carrying out the desires of the flesh by nature, children of wrath. This whole time we've been thinking of ourselves in the shoes of David being attacked, but we're the attackers. We deserve the wrath. But Jesus cries out for mercy for us. And God hears and God gives it by way of pouring out his wrath on Christ the only innocent one, the only one who truly didn't deserve it, took on the suffering for us. He gave up his life to purchase grace for us. And then he rose, leaving death in the grave. And and though curses should be our coat, instead we are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We have every reason to be hopeful for the future when God will wipe away those tears once and for all, when vindication will be completed, when those who truly are against God and against his people will be in hell for eternity. He'll lock them up with Satan and all the demons while we enjoy Jesus forever. But the suffering is still present, so the lament must continue. And verse 31 gives us hope. He stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. So tell him you need him. Lament. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how you so clearly speak to our hearts and to our souls through it. I I pray for your help this morning as maybe this was not the easiest thing to hear. Or maybe the application isn't very clear. Sure, we're to lament, but God, how do we do it? What do we say? Help us. If not here in this room today, God, when we're alone with you, help us to grieve the loss, to lament the hurt, to cry out to our Father as your children, free to do so, expressing all the depths of who we are, coming to know ourselves better, and you, the Savior who heals. Praise you, Jesus.